Good morning, everyone. Thank you, music team. And if anyone else happens to be sitting on a, a talent like Oscar was, can you please let us know? <laughs> Thank you, Oscar. We greatly enjoyed hearing you play this morning. I want to begin this morning by airing some dirty laundry. Well, it's actually not that dirty. This is my, this is my clean laundry. These are all of the unmatched socks <laughs> in the Donald household. There's a lot of them. And occasionally, you know, you will find an adult or teenager sock in here, but most of the socks are little girl socks. And they just keep building up in this basket. And some of the socks are, are short-term residents. They might stay there for one wash, separated from their, their partner while the washing gets done. But sadly, many of the socks that are in this basket are long-term residents of this basket. And I know that I am not the only person in the world that has this problem. Many people have this problem of unmatched socks. We never had need for a socks with our partner's basket before, with our three older kids. So I don't know if you just get slacker after number three and things are just sort of built up. But many of these socks sit lonely week after week as each load is putting, put away and they wait for that day when Bruce and I can stand it no longer and we order a clean up of the girls' bedrooms. And that usually results in many happy reunions amongst <laughs> the socks without partners. Now, I say usually because of recent times, last sort of six or seven months, there has been increasingly little joy amongst the socks without partners, even when a clean-up has been ordered. And silly me, I thought that the girls were just getting better and better at cleaning up their bedrooms. I'd order a clean-up, I'd be called to come and do the inspection at the end, and the time was getting shorter and shorter and the rooms were getting cleaner and cleaner. But still, the socks without partners were not finding partners. And so I smelled a rat. And it didn't take long to find the rat, because if you scratch below the surface of an outwardly clean bedroom, you will find all sorts of things. And so one day I took it upon myself to lean over the bed between the wall and the bed where it joins and see what was down there. And can I tell you, it was rammed full with stuff that was down there. Absolutely all sorts of stuff, toys, clothes, books, old craft projects, schoolwork, school books, school library books, it was an Aladdin's cave. And so I got down on my stomach and I moved aside the storage boxes and I was like a wombat burrowing through there deeper and deeper and there was stuff coming out either side until finally there was nothing left under the bed. And then there was a mild panic while I struggled trying to get out because <laughs> I was kind of gone in too far and there's that moment of panic when you think I can't get out. 
But never in your life have you seen a more messy bedroom than the bedroom after I'd done my burrowing trick under the bed. And everything that was under there had been brought out into the light of day. And we Christians are sometimes just like that little child that hides their mess under the bed and tries to pass the room off as clean. Because what you get with us is not always what you see. Often what you get is that nice facade, the Christian facade. And if you scratch a little bit below the surface and get down on your belly and really have a good look, you might be very surprised at what you will find. And it won't just be a whole pile of unmatched socks. You'll see whole families bickering and squabbling on their way to church. Step out of the car and enter the realm of the church building and it's all smiles and happy times. You'll see the person intently listening to the sermon while what's going through their mind is, now what should we have for dinner tonight? Someone else can smile and be dishing out words of encouragement while they're in the building, but at home their tongue is unleashed to become a thing of destruction. Another can pray very eloquently during the prayer meetings while all the time thinking, oh, how long is this going to take? Someone else can lead a Bible study or teach little children on a Sunday morning all about forgiveness, but they're not able to practice it themselves. Someone else is happy to serve, as long as they don't have to serve with this one or that one, or as long as things are done their way, or as long as their efforts are appropriately acknowledged. Now, I'm sure that you can all think of plenty of examples yourself, because if we are all honest with one another, we've all been there in one way or another. We can all think of times, possibly even times this week, when our motives have been wrong. And when the way that we have presented ourselves in the company of other Christians is not the way we present at work or at home. And this is what Jesus is addressing in our Beatitude today. His most comprehensive commentary on it is found in Mark chapter 7. So if you turn, if you've got your Bibles or other forms of scripture with you, Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 8. In my Bible, this section is titled Clean and Unclean. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who'd come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with defiled hands? And he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Now in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is even more blunt. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. They're pretty tough words. Now, the word that translates as pure in our beatitude today, blessed, are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The word that translates as pure is katheros in Greek. Now, originally, it just meant clean as opposed to dirty or soiled. But it has a number of uses uh, in society, and each one of those adds a little bit for us to the definition of what this word pure means. What is Jesus talking about when he says we should be pure in heart? Now, the word has been applied to corn that has been winnowed so that all of the chaff has been removed. The word has also been applied to the refining of metals. So just the pure metal is left. And it's also been applied to armies where all of those undisciplined soldiers have been gotten rid of so that what you've got left is just a very disciplined army. So it means clean, it means uncontaminated, unadulterated and unmixed and that is the sense of the word in the New Testament. Now the Old Testament of course was not originally written in Greek. It was written in Hebrew and then was translated into Greek, and we call that translation the Septuagint. And if you search that translation for this word, katheros, you will find that it appears throughout, but that it is most heavily concentrated in books like Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And there it is associated with the ritual or ceremonial cleanliness that was applied, that was required to approach God in worship. Now, there were any number of things that could make a person unclean. Skin diseases, childbirth, certain types of food, contact with mildew, menstruation, sexual activity. But right up near the top of the list was contact with a dead body. And in the context for people living in tents in the wilderness, as they mostly were, most of these laws simply made good hygiene sense, particularly when you weren't sure when there was going to be water available and you were going to have to carry what water you had with you until you found the next place with water. 
But by the time of Jesus, these simple laws given by God for his people had been blown out to thousands of regulations that mostly majored on the minor. The premise being that if one worked hard to abide by all of these regulations, one could on one's own merit come and present oneself as clean and right before God. And so when Jesus likens the Pharisees to whitewashed tombs, not only is he saying you can't do that, you can't do it on your own, but he's also saying that in spite of all of your efforts, you remain rotten at the core, defiled, contaminated and unclean, full of dead men's bones. And can you imagine what that must have been like for them? These people who had worked so hard to try and keep themselves and their communities in a state where they could be presented clean before God. The dead were buried way outside the town. And so here Jesus was saying that in spite of all your efforts to keep it outside of the town, not only is it inside of the city walls, it's actually as close as it can be. You are contaminated on the inside, he was saying. They were filthy before God because God saw beneath the superficiality of all of their religious rituals and beneath the whitewashed facade that they presented to everybody else. Now I want to ask you how many of you recognise this painting yeah. How many of you only recognise it? Now, be honest. How many of you only recognise it because it featured in one of the very popular Mr Bean movies? <laughs> All of the younger ones. The rest maybe have a little bit cultured. Officially, this painting, does anyone know what it's called? It's not called Whistler's Mother. Officially, this painting is called Arrangement in Grey and Black Number One. A highly descriptive term. That's its title. But it is better known by its colloquial name, which is Whistler's Mother. The portrait was painted in 1871 by James McNeil Whistler, and it is, of course, a portrait of his mother. 20 years after it was painted, it was purchased by the French state. Today, it's worth an estimated 30 million pounds, and it is the most important American artwork that resides outside of America. Now, in the movie that I mentioned, Rowan Atkinson <laughs> plays Mr. Bean, who is a clumsy security guard who is constantly falling asleep on the job at the National Gallery in London. But somehow, Bean is selected to be the National Gallery's representative to travel to Los Angeles, where they're going to have a great big opening because um, an American philanthropist, all fictional of course, has purchased the painting and it's going to come back to huge fanfare to America. Bean is sent over to represent the United Kingdom. While admiring the portrait alone, Bean sneezes on it. Not a problem, he has a handkerchief in his top pocket. He removes the handkerchief to clean the mess he's made on the painting, only to discover that also within his pocket with the handkerchief was a pen that's leaked all over the handkerchief. 
and Whistler's mother becomes all ink-stained. In typical Mr Bean fashion, the more he dabs at the face, the more ink-stained she becomes. In a panic, he removes the portrait and sets about trying to restore it himself. Eventually, he uses thinners to clean the ink off the face. And there is a brief moment of relief where it appears that he's been successful until the thinners start to dissolve the paint and Whistler's mother's face becomes all twisted and distorted and hideous. The more he wipes, the more her face smears until the face completely disappears altogether. And in the end, his best attempts at restoration <laughs> produce a hideous cartoon-style face on top of the shoulders of Whistler's mother. All appears lost until he comes up with a brilliant idea and he goes and gets a print of the painting from the gallery gift shop and he removes it from the frame and he sticks the print over the original masterpiece. And to give it a bit of authenticity, he beats up some egg whites and paints them so they get the, you know, the nice brush stroke effect. And the forgery fools all of the international art critics and the grand opening is a huge success. I think that that contaminated, defiled, masterpiece gives us some idea of what God must see when he looks beneath the facade that so many of us have. Doesn't matter how much we wipe and scrub and try to restore it ourselves, until that facade comes down, restoration will not be possible. God created the original and he can and he will restore it but we must first do away with the facade that is there and hand it back to him, just as it is, to allow his Holy Spirit to do that refining work. Each one of us have been created by that master in his own image, and all of us have been stained by sin, and none of us are capable with dealing with that sin on our own and ultimately anything we might do or try and do on our own is at best only going to be a cover-up job, a facade. We might fool one another with that but we will never fool the Lord. As the Lord said to Samuel when he chose David to be Israel's future king, people look at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. He sees our inner self and that's why this beatitude is talking about purity of heart because God's not interested in any other form of purity. When he looks at your heart, what does he see? Does he see a heart that is completely sold out for him? Do you love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind? Or does he compete for your attention with a number of other things? Is our obsession with self creating a facade that is acting as a barrier, preventing the Holy Spirit from doing his restoring work. Even within this building, next weekend we're going to have loads of visitors here. It's a beautiful building, but it could resemble a whitewashed tomb if we are not in unity with one another. So how do we overcome this obsession with self? James provides these words of advice in his brief Letter. You'll find them in James 4, 7 to 8. 
Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Trying to serve both God and self is double-minded. And if you think back to those examples that I gave earlier, the bickering family, the person who wants to serve, but only for these reasons, if you think back to those examples, all of them have some element of self which causes this double-mindedness that James is talking about. The double-minded, James says to them, submit to God, resist the devil, come near to God and he will come near to you, cleanse your hands and purify your heart. was the first verse that I ever learnt, come near to God and he will come near to you, James 4, 8. And it is a wonderful promise to us and I think Contained within that promise lies the secret to today's beatitude. Purifying the heart begins with submission. And that submission flows from all of the other beatitudes. There are no laws that we can follow to guarantee purity. And that is precisely Jesus' point when he chastises the Pharisees for their meticulous religious behaviour. They were washing the outside without attending to their hearts. You see, purity is not a law. Purity is a desire. And it takes hold of those who are poor in spirit and those who mourn the presence of sin in their lives and those who are meek and those who long to see the righteousness of God's kingdom take hold in the world, but recognise that for it to do that, it must first take hold within their own hearts. In these people, the desire for purity will well up like a spring. And the pathway to that purity begins with a bold but very simple prayer, David's prayer, Psalm 139, 23 to 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And as we draw near to God and he draws near to us, two miracles happen. The first is the miracle of transformation. That is what we've been speaking about this whole series as we've talked about being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. And the second is a miracle of perception. Sometimes these things happen rapidly. Sometimes they take time. I like Raquela Parham's definition in her book, A Spiritual Formation Primer. She writes that as we do this, we call it spiritual formation, It is the process in which believers cooperate with God and with one another so that their souls are nourished and their characters are transformed into Christ-likeness. We cooperate with God through his Holy Spirit and we cooperate with one another in Christian community in this work of soul nourishment and transformation. The Holy Spirit is the primary agent in our formation into Christ's likeness, and we seek to cooperate with him. 
but we can't do that unless we recognise his influence in our lives and that can only happen when we let go of the facade and slow down to look and listen for his presence in our lives. Any mother or father in the schoolyard can recognise the sound of their own child yelling mum or dad over the whole mix of everyone else yelling the same thing in the schoolyard. And so too, with time and attentiveness to the details of our own life experiences, we can learn to recognise his movement in our own lives. And we can choose to respond accordingly. We can also intentionally seek to foster that partnership by what one author, Evan Howard, has called constraining one's own human experience in the context of God's active presence to achieve spiritual ends. Now, what on earth does he mean there? Constraining one's own human experience doesn't sound very fun. It sounds like you're missing out on something if you're constraining. It is, in fact, one of the many paradoxes of the Christian faith. To constrain your own experience is to exert control over the way you behave. And yes, at least initially, that might prevent you from doing something that perhaps you might otherwise want to do. You might study the scriptures at night, and that might mean you miss out on some of your favourite TV shows. Or you might practice a season of fasting, and no prizes for guessing what you're going to miss out on if you do that. Perhaps you might spend some time in solitude, foregoing time with others. Or you might regularly open your house in hospitality to others, foregoing privacy. Or you might abstain from practices and products that are produced through oppression of workers overseas or that are harmful to the environment. Or you might regularly spend time in prayer or meditating on scripture or journaling all of these practices we call spiritual disciplines. And all of them constrain self in some way and this focuses our experience and creates space in our lives for us to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in that nourishment of our souls. And that leads to our formation in Christ-likeness. Now it is our intent later on in the year, perhaps with some small groups, to look in more detail at some of these disciplines and perhaps to have opportunities to, to practice them together, particularly those we're not really familiar with. Um, but I encourage you in the meantime to have a go, to try and explore some of these things and you'll be surprised at what God will do as you draw near to him. He will draw near to you. The great paradox in all of this is that while initially you might feel like you're missing out on something else that perhaps you might want to do, the more you immerse yourself in these disciplines, the more aware you become of the Holy Spirit's work in your life, the more what you want to do becomes what God wants to do. Constraint becomes a gateway to freedom. Now we can constrain our experience to help us cooperate more fully with the Holy Spirit, but sometimes we don't get a choice in it. Sometimes bad things just happen to us. And it doesn't matter what we do, we're not going to be able to constrain that sort of experience. Times of great suffering and anguish come and it is in those times that we can constrain our reaction to those experiences and thereby 
allow space for the Holy Spirit to operate in that experience. In fact, sometimes trials are the greatest catalyst for very rapid spiritual growth because it is then that that facade falls. The mask that we had on doesn't really seem to fit in those circumstances anymore. And it is in that hard place that we can experience more readily the futility of self. And we learn to draw near to God and experience the blessings that he has for us. And also allow ourselves to experience the blessings of Christian community. We cooperate not only with the Holy Spirit, we cooperate also with one another. And we can do that formally in worship, in corporate prayer, in Bible study, in engaging one another to be a formal sort of spiritual mentoring process. But it also happens informally when we just share our lives together and speak of what God is doing into one another's lives. Our conversations that we have amongst ourselves should be different to the conversations that everyone else is having because they should be peppered with the excitement of seeing God at work. There's nothing more wonderful than sitting with someone who is drawing near to God and who is actively making space for the Holy Spirit through the practice of the disciplines and hear them pour out what God is doing in their lives. In every case, their testimony rings true to that promise that when we draw near to God, he will draw near to you. With this miracle of transformation comes the second miracle, the miracle of perception. Now the Bible makes it pretty clear that no one can see God and live. John writes in his gospel, no one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. So Jesus has made God known to us. And there's some other scriptures up there. God is spirit, so we shouldn't be expecting that we're going to see his form. But neither should it mean that we have to wait until we die or Christ comes again to experience his blessings. So what does Jesus mean when he says that we will see God? Well, seeing means a number of things. It means being in God's presence. If I say to you, can I see you for a moment? It doesn't mean that I want to gaze on your form and study you. It means that I want you to come into my presence. Maybe I've got something to tell you. Maybe I've got something to show you. And that is how Pharaoh used the word when he finally said to Moses that he would never see his face again. He meant that as king, he would not be admitting Moses back into his presence. So in that sense, we see God because God has admitted us into his presence. Seeing also means understanding. If you explain something to me and I say, oh, I see doesn't mean that I physically see what you're describing, but it means that I understand it. And that's how the psalmist used the word when he said, open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things in your law. Didn't mean that he wanted to admire the calligraphy, the way in which the law was written. 
He's talking about that understanding that comes when spiritual blindness falls away. And we had the perfect example of that last week in the testimony that we had. She said, all of a sudden things were different and I could see God in nature. And it doesn't have to be just nature. All sorts of things. People who've read the Bible over and over and over again, suddenly words jump out at them and they have a different perception. We see and experience God in his word, in prayer, in serving others and in the circumstances, good and bad, of our lives. It's difficult to explain, but once you have experienced it, you know why. We call it a miracle of perception because things are suddenly different. God reveals himself to those whose hearts are right with him. We also see God through Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who's at the Father's side, reveals him to us. He's made him known. So when we let go of that facade and we seek to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and with others in this journey of transformation, we are changed more and more into the image of Christ. And we begin to see his image reflected in ourselves and also in other Christians that we know the kingdom of God is truly within us. So we see because we become more like Christ. And on earth, what we see is at best only a very poor reflection. For now we see in a mirror, indirectly or dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I am known in part, then I will be fully known just as I am fully known. Ancient mirrors were just a piece of polished metal. They looked like the image up there on the screen for you. They provided some reflection, but it wasn't very good. And that is how we see now. It is a blessing to see and experience God in our earthly life, but how much more so will it be when we see face to face and know fully and are fully known. Beneath the facade, there lies a masterpiece in need of the master's restoration. And within every whitewashed tomb, there are dry bones waiting to have new life breathed into them by the master. Blessed are the poor, pure in heart, for they will see God. We're going to sing a response. The song is Refiner's Fire. And if you could sing it prayerfully, it is a response to God about our desire to be more and more like him.